wine. <laughs> and yes, I do announce it every time I take a sip. <laughs> I shall narrate. <laughs> this pizza's not that bad. Where's it from? Domino's. If It's their new pan pizza. I see. It's pretty panny. It's a pretty crusty. It's good, though. I, not as good as, like, real pizza, but mm-hmm. for fake pizza, it's really good. It's like they're trying. <laughs> it's like they're trying. <laughs> Asia Coleman. <laughs> Let's go in on the box. Going right on the pizza boxes. <laughs> Testimonials. Domino's. It's like they're trying. <laughs> yeah, so many people have never had real pizza before. It's kind of sad. Like, no guy in Chicago and had Chicago deep dish pizza. I think, like, pizza and Domino's are, like, it. And Papa John's. Oh, my God. Papa John's is so terrible. It's like ass crack. I would rather eat ass crack. How do people think that's good pizza or food? I don't know. Like, is it just total lack of any other options? I don't know. Maybe it's the fact they deliver. Oh, yeah. That might factor into it, too. A lot of places that are like real food don't deliver. You have to go to them. (laughs) Tell (laughs) me more about these real places. (laughs) You have to like get out of your like unless it's Los Angeles. Because, like, everywhere delivers. Even, like, grocery stores deliver. Mm-hmm. If you live in the country, you're fucked. There's only one pizza place that delivers to my house. And it's bad pizza. <laughs> but if there's a snowstorm and you don't want to go anywhere, then that's what you're doing. If there's a snowstorm, you're going to make a pizza person deliver to you? <laughs> yeah, because we're assholes. <laughs> <laughs> When you're lonely one night and you want to be an asshole to someone, you call the pizza guy and have him deliver in a snowstorm. It's just, it's the Indiana way. You don't want to risk your family dying. It's <laughs> a random person, though, who probably just semen in your pizza anyway. Wow. People do that. They semen all up in your pizza. Like, do you have to pay extra for it? or No. It's free? Uh, no, it's not even free. It's the price of the pizza. <laughs> that's, that's how much it costs. Yep. Unless you find out and then it's free. But if you don't find out, like how many times have you just been eating somebody else's semen and not even known it? I ask myself that question a lot. As you should. As everybody should. It's kind of scary, actually. Mm. Not like that semen is really scary. I don't think that many pizzas out there get jizzed on. No, there was like a story a couple of years <laughs> back. It was Domino's Pizza Chain, too, funnily enough, where these guys were arrested for putting a YouTube video up of them semening in the pizza and then selling it to people. They got fired. But when you think about it, how many people have semened in your food before and just not been dumb enough to YouTube it? Wow. Um... <laughs> You are really kind of blowing my mind right now. I know. I I am afraid of every pizza I've ever eaten. No, not the real pizzas. The real pizzas are like take pride in them. But like Domino's and shit, like they don't take pride. But I I don't know what that dividing line is. Like you're (laughs) opening up a world for me in which I guess the desire to see your own ejaculate get eaten by strangers is powerful enough to override your professional and hygienic sensibilities. I don't see how that wouldn't mean that even the finest dough tossers in the Los Angeles area, or in Indiana for that matter, would feel equally free to jizz on pizzas. (laughs) I mean, I think of how many times you and I got the Pizza Rosa at Palermo. Yeah, with pepperoni added. And we also got a side of Alfredo sauce. 
And now you've blown up this world of pizza jizzing. (laughs) (laughs) That makes the sauce an obvious threat. Oh, God. To say nothing of the pizza. You have no idea. It goes so much further than just pizza. A conspiracy. Okay, so seriously, one of my friends in high school, he had this friend who worked at Marsh and they told him he had to work on a holiday and he was so pissed off that he jizzed. He made the donuts. He jizzed in the donut batter and the donut (laughs) cheat, like all in it. So every time anybody gets a donut from Marsh. Krispy Kreme. That is a Krispy Kreme. That is a Krispy Kreme. It's like... Ew, I know. Conspiracy theory. <laughs> this is our show, Asia. <laughs> this is going to be our reality show, our docudrama. We are going to travel the country in search of restaurants whose employees jizz in their food. It's not like I've never not had semen in my mouth, but it was voluntary. <laughs> I love how you have to phrase that as like a quadruple negative. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't not had unsemen in my mouth. Well, I think it's so confusing. The future employers can't tell what the fuck I actually said. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Whatever, Aisha. If they can't see the awesomeness that is conspiracy theory, I don't think they should be employing you anyway. They don't deserve you. I'm getting to the point where I'm going to have to buy one of those damn scopes that like the lights, the the light thing. Black light. Where semen is black light. Oh, it's just a black light, really? Yeah, that's all it is. Oh, I thought it was like something really fancy. Nope. Because louder SVU makes me think it's something really fancy. It's just a black light. That's sad. Oh, no, it's totally, yeah, it's just a black light. Oh, okay, well, I'm going to buy one of those then, and I'm going to put all my food under it <laughs> <laughs> forever. <laughs> I think you should just replace all of your light bulbs with black lights. Are are you becoming cum paranoid? (laughs) Yes, now more than ever, I am afraid of semen. Wait a minute, this is a new fear. I knew about nipples. Yeah. I did not know about semen. It's just gross. Ever since I shook Bill Clinton's hand, it just like, it kind (laughs) of... No, yeah. you cannot. You do not get to blame this on Bubba. Like that's where it started. I don't know how it started, but ever since then, I've been deathly afraid of semen. First things first. Did you approach semen with reckless abandon before then? Hell yeah, I did. I didn't care where it was. <laughs> Blast away. So do you think subconsciously, perhaps, that you were afraid of a Monica Lewinsky-like situation where the semen on your dress takes down a president? All I can say is that (laughs) shaking Bill Clinton's hand was like one of the most powerful handshakes and experiences of my life. And at that moment, everything shifted in a way where I felt so powerful and then so afraid by that power. And then semen. The end. Yeah, that's two different stories. No, that's the same story. I'm sorry, Asia, but (laughs) semen and Bill Clinton's hand are not connected to you. 
They were both at that moment. Cause like I was about Are to Are you j- saying that he jizzed in his hand before he shook yours? He probably could have. <laughs> there was a lot of power behind that handshake. Or alternately, you should find out if he ate at a Papa John's before he <laughs> went to that event. He probably ate at Marsh and had some donuts. Because they love sitting at Marsh Donuts for any event that has political or famous figures in it in this state. So he probably ate a Marsh Donut and then on his hand was like some of that dude's semen left over. Wow. Yeah. You heard it here first, folks. (laughs) Bill Clinton, better wash your hands. (laughs) Also might want to mouthwash a bit. (laughs) <laughs> you ate Krispy Kremes. Funnily enough, I did not wash my hand after he shook it for like three days. I remember you telling me that, and that could have health consequences in light of this new revelation. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know like what semen in your hand or mouth has ever, like, except for like herpes. I don't know what. what well, is they, that? Do, they do say that one in the mouth is worth two in the bush. They should be the opposite, right? Maybe, I don't know. The mouth is worth one in the bush. It depends on how you're doubling up, I guess. Yeah, I guess. How much is it worth in the asshole? That's the pot of gold. (laughs) It's worth four. It's worth a rainbow. (laughs) Or at least a thumb. You're speaking to me, Asia, from your new computer. Yay! Yes. (laughs) Somehow you don't share my enthusiasm, but... The call quality is already significantly better. Yes. You now have a computer that doesn't melt. When I try to touch it. How long was it in that condition? Like two years? A while. Maybe three. It wow. just Oh, it was horrible. It would overheat within an hour of me turning it on. How many laptop fan cooler things did you buy? Like, you bought so many coolers that go under the laptop to try to ventilate it. Yeah, like ten. At least ten. Um, they broke. All of them broke. Jeez, I wore them all out. Also, the CD drive just stopped working. You, you had to, I guess, manually pry it open and then slam it shut in order for, to play any CD, which is like a writing program I have is on a CD. Well, The Sims, I like that was a Christmas present and I couldn't play Sims. And I have five Sims children. <laughs> They're all doing great, by the way. No, thank you for asking. (laughs) (laughs) Jamie is in soccer. (laughs) The second oldest one just got a promotion. She's in the varsity league. He's a weatherman now. If you were wondering. (laughs) (laughs) Gosh, as if it would kill you to take a little interest in my family. (laughs) My husband just got a makeover. (laughs) (laughs) He's very excited about it. Your husband just got a makeover. Your sim husband? Yeah, my sim husband. What's his name? His name is... That's a good question. (laughs) I can tell you all of my sims kids. It seems like you have a really meaningful relationship with this man. His name is Mirage. I did not make it up. He was actually one of the Sims characters that was built in before I started playing. And then he just fell in love with my Sim and we started fornicating. And then we got married and had five children. He was a spy for a long time. And then when my Sim found out, she made him quit and become a businessman. (laughs) This is all so much to take in. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm happy that I have real Sims now so that I don't have to go around flashing my science teachers. 
I love the term real sins. <laughs> and I also appreciate your ability to not have to flash anyone now. Yeah. Whoever taught you in a classroom setting. Yes. <laughs> I miss my Sim children. I really did. They're are, so- are they going to celebrate Simsmas? Are you getting them Simsmas gifts? I don't think that they have a Sims Christmas. The only thing they really celebrate <laughs> Christmas. Christmas. The only thing they celebrate is birthdays because they age up then and they have new life wishes that they get and stuff. (laughs) You should see my Sims house. It is fucking gorgeous. And I am a rock star and also an artist. (laughs) Yeah. So this is real. (laughs) (laughs) My oldest daughter, my oldest Sim child. She is a world-renowned surgeon. My second youngest child is a weatherman. All real. My third youngest child is a teenager, but he's also an artist, and he's awesome. (laughs) But he's also an artist, and he's also a weatherman. (laughs) 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 They're all doing great, right? (laughs) Family, they're super rich, they know it, but they're also nice. The end. (laughs) <laughs> okay, so we're gonna start this thing. <laughs> <laughs> Eventually, it's awesome that you've got your laptop and that you have the Skype connection now because we can talk on Skype. Oh, really, Seth? Really? Can I see you? Can I see you? <laughs> wow. <laughs> because no one else is going to see this. <laughs> Asia Coleman just unmuted the video on her webcam, connecting us via Skype in a threatening way. It was the most threatening unmuting of video I've ever seen. That's how you use Skype, right? As a tool of intimidation. <laughs> just as like a enhanced bitching technique. Uh, AKA bitch torture. Yeah, bitch torture. <laughs> Speaking of bitch torture, we're approaching the fiscal cliff. Nice. <laughs> nice. We're, you are getting a lot better. No, but seriously, fuck the fiscal cliff. Fuck it in its ear. Asia, Asia, we need to go off the cliff. Skull, fuck the cliff. And fuck its skull. Do you know what the fiscal cliff is, Asia? Why do you ask me these things when you send me articles about them? I read. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah, I know what the cliff because I would like to give you opportunities throughout the show to demonstrate the ampleness and suppleness of your knowledge. Can I just flash everybody and get it over with? Seth? Jesus. Like Again, we can't do that until we have higher quality cameras. <laughs> like, How many times do I have to tell you? You can use the video as a tool to intimidate me, <laughs> but you cannot yet use it as a tool to sexually assault <laughs> the fans that by that I mean. Yet. Well, that takes away like 50% of my power. <laughs> and 100% of your motivation. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Literally. Literally. Um, figure. It's a fisc- fiscal cliff. <laughs> the fiscal cliff. <laughs> <laughs> the Trisket cliff. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds so less scary when you say it that way. 
<laughs> In January of next year, the Nabisco factory will shut down, causing all the Triscuits in America to cease production. And wheat thins. I think they also have wheat thins. Nope. They're just shutting down the Triscuits. <laughs> okay, sorry. So there's a fiscal cliff. Yeah. Which in and of itself is a bullshit term. That's the most important thing to remember. There really is no such thing as a fiscal cliff. There is a combination of spending cuts that Democrats and Republicans agreed to in 2010, the last time Republicans held the economy hostage over the debt ceiling. There are tax increases that are scheduled to happen in January because the Bush tax cuts are supposed to expire, again, as part of laws decided by Democrats and agreed to by Republicans and passed into law and signed by the president. The Bush tax cuts end. Now, the Republicans have created a firestorm of fear and panic-mongering and have been trying to strong-arm the president into cutting further into basic government services and giving up big cuts to social programs for nothing in return, basically. But thankfully, we have a president capable of strategy and negotiation and even though the media has not been calling republicans on their shit the president finally did in 2010 obama and john boehner negotiated what's called a sequester which was that they were putting together a panel to cut debts and deficits which is stupid on its own terms but we'll address that later they made this panel to cut debts and deficits and said that if that panel couldn't come up with one solid recommendation and voted out of that panel and get a vote in congress then the cuts would go through that's what the sequester would be and it would be equal parts cuts to government health services medicaid Medicare, but not from the benefit side to the people who get those programs. It's to the providers of that care and to defense. And it was a huge amount of cuts. It was like $1.2 trillion of cuts. And now, after some reporting that it would take some demand out of the economy and possibly throw us into a recession, if all of the cuts went through at the same time, it's important to remember that, again, the, the cliff term is completely misleading this these cuts and the tax increases would take place over the course of the whole year they would not all go into effect immediately and any of them are law and as such they can be changed by congress congress can change the law that they passed previously and not only that but they've been negotiating obama and boehner this time after an election in which boehner's party completely got trounced but he's acting still even up to now even up to this late date acting as though giving the president less than what he wants is somehow a concession. If the tax rates go up as scheduled, they will go back to the Clinton rates, which were higher than the Bush tax rates, obviously. But that means that on January 7th or whenever the next session of Congress is, Democrats can bring forth the Obama tax cut bill and pass the tax cut under $250,000 and have it attached to his name instead of attached to Bush's name. So yeah, I am all for going over the cliff because that sequester can be completely diffused. That can be like untriggered or they can let some of the defense cuts go through, which is a thing that should happen. But the people who always want to 
cut social services and stop the government from doing things for non-rich people are using this as yet another hostage crisis and threatening to use the debt limit once again as a hostage to try to cut those things. And Obama, for years now, has been trying to pursue what's called a grand bargain. And this is an article from Jonathan Chait at New York Magazine. It is, of course, difficult to separate the genuine strategic beliefs of this administration from its attempts to spin journalists and the public. But it seems that, in the last few weeks, Obama reverted at least a bit to his 2011 mentality when he thought that the force of reason would compel House Republicans to compromise with him. In recent weeks, Obama seems to have concluded that Republicans have come around and that it is time to sit down and hash out a deal like reasonable people. He moved his position more than halfway toward Boehner's. Democrats in Congress are incredibly discussing the option of compromising even more. But reasonable compromise to avert the fiscal cliff is impossible. Republicans as a whole don't even seem capable of linear thinking about the budget. They don't know what they actually want on spending. They don't understand why Obama wants more revenue or what role this would play in the broader fiscal picture. They don't even seem capable of politically organizing in a way that maximizes their fanatic principles. The House Republican Caucus is simply a teeming pit of anger. So, Asia. Yes. Given what I've just told you and what I know you know about what's left of the Republican Party, do you think that there's any conceivable, quote unquote, grand bargain of spending cuts and tax increases that Republicans would ever be able to pass that wouldn't completely fuck the poor? You can't really bargain with a brick wall, (laughs) first of all. Second of all. To answer your question, I just did. Third of all, (laughs) I was going to say no. That's a valid second point. (laughs) You can't bargain with a brick wall. I mean, these people, they don't care about anything except their stupid, like, myopic focus on the rich and the wealthy and protecting them is just hurting them so much. And they can't see that, like, the city is burning down all around them. They just don't seem to care. They're not aware of it. And... No, you can't bargain with these people. So, yeah, let's go off the cliff and just say fuck them and then hope that they get replaced in the midterm elections. Yeah. And I mean, the again, the good news is that we have a president who will not, in the end, take a completely shitty deal just for the sake of getting a deal. They don't want a deal. They want their way. They didn't get elected, though. Did anybody tell them this? Like, they're not the president. Their Senate has been even further decimated. And yes, they still have the Congress, but I don't think that that's going to be past 20. Again, I I mentioned this in the last episode by that. I mean, but millions of more votes were cast for congressional Democratic candidates in this last election. The only reason Republicans still have such a majority in the House of Representatives is because the census happened and then they won all those Tea Party seats in 2010 and got to redistrict the congressional districts in order to, you know, guarantee themselves a majority. But you're exactly right that it's not going to be possible to achieve conservative policy ends or liberal policy ends if there's an institution that is fundamentally incapable of writing legislation. The dynamics of the Tea Party are such that the person who isn't the most extreme gets primaried and gets replaced 
<laughs> and gets challenged. So, of course, there are going to be people who will be coming for Boehner, but it's important to note, in early January, I think it's January 3rd, is going to be the vote on the Speaker of the House. So there's rumor that what Boehner is waiting for to actually make a deal and try to honestly strike a deal is he's going to wait until he gets reconfirmed as Speaker of the House. But it seems that Obama has finally learned to stop negotiating with himself, and he took back the most concession-y and, in my opinion, worst proposal that he gave Boehner, which included a Social Security benefit cut. And this happened after he promised and after Joe Biden promised and after congressional and Senate leaders in the Democratic Party promised that Social Security was not going to be touched during these negotiations. So... If that's going to stop that, I'm glad those negotiations are falling apart. But either way, I'm also glad the president took back that offer. Well, no, that wasn't a real offer. I don't think that was a real offer at all. I think that that was just an offer to show like the American people and the, the media exactly what these people are after. And that he did exactly that. He did exactly that. Precisely. And to prove that they can never take yes for an answer. And I thought that was very impressive. Yeah, it was great. And I mean, he's he's. He's gotten way better at smoking the Republicans out and getting them to authentically represent the depths of their greed and short-sightedness. And and hatred. Yeah. It's been amazing how thoroughly they're all revealing themselves now. And it's only gotten even more intense since the election. You know, you can just smell the desperation on them now. Despite all the anti-women bills, anti-union bills, anti-public education bills going through state by state that got rolled back or at least tripped up by this last election, the Republican Party is moving to bring back those laws and insulate them from the kinds of challenges at the ballot box that have taken them away in other states. In Michigan, they're having their state legislative kind of lame duck session, just like Congress. They just had this election. So the people who are left are not necessarily the people who are going to still be around come the next legislative session. And just in this one lame duck session, they have defeated union rights. They passed a so-called right to work law. It permits workers to benefit from the high salaries gained through collective bargaining without contributing to a union. They passed one of the most restrictive anti-abortion bills in the country, and they're trying to vote on bills to end public education and privatize it and hand it over to corporations. These are, you know, extremely desperate moves by some desperate people. Nobody's, nobody, it doesn't seem anybody in that state is happy with the with the moves that their lawmakers are making, including people that are supposedly like on their own side. Like, you know, the super wealthy, the Michigan superintendent just wrote a huge letter against against their um, privatizing education. It's really sad. Even things that stuff is happening like that in Indiana, where they're passing horrible, like um, pro gun laws and just mm-hmm. more like really just horrible tea party stuff. Well, and as we talked about on the show before, it's turning out that most of these bills are ALEC bills. They're corporate drafted, drafted by lobbyist bills pushed on state legislatures and pushed through Republican politicians by the American Legislative Exchange Council, which is really just a front group for corporate lobbyists. 
and they're passing gun laws. They're writing model bills, literally like banning and restricting abortion. They're doing model bills um, of right to work laws. And I mean, if you do, you know the history of right to work laws in America? No. Why is Congress allowed to outsource their bill writing when that's like their one and only function, practically? It's true. Why is that allowed? I don't. Can somebody don't insource a law against outsourcing laws? <laughs> it's amazing to me. I guess it's just that it's on a small enough scale that it doesn't get the kind of national scrutiny that would be necessary to actually shame these people out of office. But I want to focus on the right to work law because there have been attempts to pass these and there there are right to work laws in something like 30 states. But it is a really vicious attack on one of the most basic organizing rights that people have in a society um, and are supposed to have in a quote unquote free market capitalist society, which is the right to collectively bargain for wages um, and work conditions. Um, the weekend was created by American unions. The work week was created by American unions. Um, Pretty much all of the basic uh, labor conditions that we all take for granted, such as they are, and I'm not saying they're the best in the world and that we couldn't be doing much better, but compared to sweatshops, (laughs) another thing we outsource... (laughs) A lot of those battles won and a lot of the basic right to collectively bargain for not only fair conditions, but fair pay are really coming under attack from ALEC and these other corporate lobby groups. And these right to work laws are one of the most direct ways of doing it, because what what the effect of these laws is, is that, okay, you're in this industry where your work is represented by a union and that union has collectively bargained for decades if not centuries, to get fair wages for people like you to do your work. In other words, you benefit from the fact that they've collectively bargained whether or not you pay union dues. But if there's a right to work law, you're not obligated to pay those union dues. So over time, that defunds the union because you have free riders, aka people who benefit from the union's work but don't contribute back to it. So it's like a peer-to-peer sharing group where someone seeds downloads, but they do not share the downloads that they seed. Exactly. I'm well, trying and to then- get younger viewers, Seth. I'm trying to get... <laughs> Come on, Bieber generation. <laughs> get worked up about this shit. <laughs> that's absolutely lecherous. That's, that's not even the fucked up thing about right-to-work laws. Okay, this is from dissentmagazine.org. As other states consider such laws, it is important also to remember the ugly racial history of right-to-work legislation. A key driver of the right-to-work movement beginning in the 1930s was Texas businessman and white supremacist Vance Muse, who hated unions in part because they promoted the brotherhood of workers across racial lines. As author Mark Ames notes, Muse bluntly outlined the thinking behind right to work, declaring, From now on, white women and white men will be forced into organizations with black African apes, whom they will have to call brother or lose their jobs. Whoa. Yeah. And this is why you see all of these states in the former Confederacy having right to work laws, so called 
right to work laws. Wait a second. I didn't even know like apes could do normal job functions of regular human beings. They're busy union busting, but if they could just be getting monkeys for this work, I'm guessing they can't really collectively bargain. And why are they starting with the African monkeys and not the American monkeys? I think that's the real bigotry at play. Vance Muse. This is horrible. Who has a name like a magician. (laughs) Not only is he a white supremacist. A horrible racist magician. A Texas tycoon. (laughs) And magician. (laughs) And now I will make the black people go back to Africa in one fail swoop. And now you lose $1,500 a year in wages. Poof! (laughs) I'm Vance Muse. I don't know why I talk like this and I'm in Texas. <laughs> I am Vance Muse. You don't want right to work laws. And now ladies can't have abortions. Pursue. <laughs> it's not funny. <laughs> You see, yeah, it's a whole lot less funny when you stop thinking of these laws as being passed by magicians. Yeah, <laughs> we should probably stop because we're going to sell them to our younger viewers. Yeah, that's true. We need If we're going to get the Bieber generation in, how do we get them in the door, Asia? <laughs> wow. How do we how do we rope them in on right to work? Do I, I have to come up with like a bubblegum pop ballad to sell <laughs> this shit? <laughs> how would that go exactly? I'm just trying to think of a chorus. What's your minimum wage, girl? (laughs) And if I give you a baby, you better keep it. (laughs) (laughs) I think we've got a hit on our hands. Done and done. I think that's going to be played on Disney Radio next week. (laughs) I just need to lay some sweet acoustic grooves down. How much will the Republican Party pay us for this? (laughs) I don't know. They still got plenty of Coke money. How perfect. Since they lost the election, nationally at least, all of the super PACs and everything are kind of redoubling their efforts on the state level. Such a great step was taken forward in so many arenas in this last election. But we've still got these assholes to contend with, and they are still using everything in their arsenal to fuck non-white and non-male human beings in America and elsewhere. (laughs) Nowhere else is it more glaring, though, than in Congress. Did you hear about, and this was from a couple weeks ago, but did you hear about the UN Disability Treaty? Yes, I did. I did hear about that. That was disgusting. Uh, This is from Huffington Post. Led by Republican opposition, the Senate rejected a United Nations treaty on the rights of the disabled that is modeled after the landmark Americans with Disabilities Act. With 38 Republicans casting no votes, the 61 to 38 vote fell five short of the two-thirds majority needed to ratify a treaty. They wheeled in Bob Dole in a goddamn wheelchair for this vote. Yeah, two, like for the vote, not against the vote, for the vote. In support of the vote. The treaty, already signed by 155 nations and ratified by 126 countries, states that nations should strive to assure that the disabled enjoy the same rights and fundamental freedoms as their fellow citizens. Republicans objected to taking up a treaty during the lame duck session of Congress and warned that 
that the treaty could pose a threat to U.S. national sovereignty. Did they ever say how, though? I never heard one of them say how. All I heard was some bullshit about how if somebody teaches their disabled child at home, they should not have to be forced to build a wheelchair accessible ramp. It is a complete red herring. The Republican hue and cry about this was so completely disconnected from anything this treaty did. It didn't force the U.S. to do anything. It didn't ask anything of America because it's modeled on after our law for the country that spends half of its breath slobbering on the flag and talking about America as an exceptional nation. This was one instance where the rest of the world actually wanted to adopt our laws. It wanted to adopt our philosophical principle that people who are disabled in any way, shape, or form deserve the same full citizenship and humanity as everyone else. And in this instance, the Republican Party literally rejected that idea. (laughs) (laughs) It's so fucking disgusting to me. I 100% think that they read the treaty. The fact that they even outsourced their law writing means they probably can't read as well. I don't think they read it. I just think they were like, no, fuck this, because this is something that Obama will be credited as doing during his presidency, and we can't have that. It was partly that, yes, and it also intersected with the extreme right-wing conspiracy theory, because the conspiracy community, specific to the right-wing movement but not exclusive to it, has always had conspiracy theories about the United Nations. There is a recent conspiracy called Agenda 21 that says, like, in the name of a global climate crisis, the UN is going to institute martial law and take apart national sovereignty. There's always been a lot of paranoia and anxiety about the United Nations. And this is from rawstory.com. Rick Santorum was one of the people who joined these Republican fuckhats in destroying this treaty. Writing for the Washington Post, Dana Milbank noted that Republican opposition to the treaty seemed to have more to do with general fear of the United Nations than opposition to the rights of the disabled. The opponents argue that the treaty, like most everything the UN does, undermines American sovereignty. In this case, via a plot to keep Americans from homeschooling their children and making other decisions about their well-being. And they're arguing that it's a slippery slope to other UN treaties like the Convention on the Rights of the Child, the Homeschool Legal Defense Association, (laughs) joined with Rick Santorum and Senator Mike Lee from Utah to voice opposition to this UN treaty. This asshole Ferris, the leader of the Homeschool Legal Defense Fund, or opposes the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child, which is another treaty that's up for consideration, because it, according to him, would prohibit children from being subjected to corporal punishment, require governments to register children immediately after birth, like for voting, and mandate accessibility to healthcare services for children. His organization opposes those things. <laughs> he opposes those because he wants corporal punishment children to not be registered to vote just because they're American citizens at birth. And he doesn't want them to, under law, have the freedom to access health care. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. But Asia? Yes. That's that's not the worst. This conspiracy goes even deeper. (laughs) The Homeschool Legal Defense Fund also claims CRC would give children the right to listen to rock music, 
watch television and even have access to pornography oh as well as having the right to choose their own religion and freely associate with others and the quote is absolutely the best part from dick hold mcgillicuddy at the homeschool legal defense fund (laughs) the united nations and globalists are determined to impose their agenda on american families Wow. Speaking with a U.S. senator, a sitting U.S. senator, and a former front-running Republican presidential candidate. Wow. Of anything. It makes me feel bad for Trig Palin. Because, like, his mother was obviously just flaunting him around without any regard to him or his well-being, as seen by her still being affiliated with a party that would be against this on a global level. The end. Yep. (laughs) that's pretty much it if sarah palin had ever been a serious politician or a good citizen or a decent human being instead of parading her disabled child around like a trophy she should have made that her campaign you know like it, it just proves how fully committed to the ideology they are that literally anything is an appropriate political coin to try to buy you some credibility or prominence or publicity yeah sarah palin is sitting up spouting off and outraged about how obama is time magazine's person of the year for the second time where is her outrage over this where is you know her understanding of what just ha- like what her party just did i'm sure her outrage is rightly directed at all of us horrible liberals who are coming to take her gun rights away <laughs> wow you're killing it with the segues tonight so yep There was a devastating school shooting in Sandy Hook, Connecticut, and somehow, someway, it has cock-punched America into actually talking about gun control and gun safety. Yeah, so the shooter was, how old was he, like 20? 20. Yeah, it was a 20-year-old shooter. His mom had a bunch of guns. His mom was a doomsday prepper, which we'll talk about a bit later. And he shot his way into the school. There were safety measures and precautions, but he got past them because he ambushed the place. And all of the child victims were between six and seven. 20 kids killed. It's not like tragedies like this haven't happened before, but for whatever reason, people are actually reacting to this situation in a demanding and not in a passive or resigned way. How did you hear about it? It was after work. I didn't hear about it until I went home and I was surfing the net. I, I, I read it. And interestingly enough, I go on Facebook. I was going to write something and then I was like, I couldn't. There was nothing I could say. I was very sorry to the victims' families and also to the victims. I mean, there's just no way that that... I mean, it's just really unconscionable. Six and seven-year-olds have literally no effect on a 20-year-old's life that has never met them and never interacted with them. You know what I mean? Like There's there's nothing that a six or seven-year-old can do to make you want to murder them. 
And if there is, then there's, you know, obviously you shouldn't be around people. Well, and from all accounts, he wasn't around people. He was completely isolated and by choice. Like he lived with his mother and pretty much only spent time with her. And the only thing that's been tossed around by the police or by anyone as a suspected motive for this was that he was afraid he was about to be committed. I don't know, because if he only spent time with his mother, she she can't speak. He can't speak. They're trying to go through his computer files. He destroyed that before he went to the school. I think that a lot of this is trying to make sense of the, the nonsensical to ease people, I guess, especially like gun lobbyists. That, I mean, they're the ones that are leading the charge for reasons why this happened so that it takes the blame off of them. And I don't think that's right. Some things just don't make sense. And it's OK that they don't make sense. It's not okay that they happened, but they're just not for for you to comprehend, you know? Like, Well, but see, I, I think we can't make sense of them, but we can certainly identify factors at play. And you're exactly right in pointing to the gun lobby as what's really facilitating the number and severity of the mass public murders that have been happening with greater and greater frequency. It bears mention the NRA works closely with the American Legislative Exchange Council to pass pro-gun and anti-registration laws and get those passed in former Confederate states and across the country. But in the immediate aftermath of the shooting, the NRA said, in the name of basic human decency, we're going to wait a while before we announce anything, but we're going to make some meaningful contributions to protect our children, you know, save the children. And before the NRA got to its meaningful contribution to explaining to America why this happened and how to keep it from happening anymore, Mike Huckabee leapt into the fray and said it was because we took God out of our schools. And gun lobbyists went on MSNBC and all over the media to say that Americans should be bearing arms to protect themselves against an ever-expanding government and elected officials, and that Americans should have guns in order to control the government. So that was the range of right-wing public opinion before the NRA said a single word about the subject. So, Asia, what meaningful contributions do you think the NRA would suggest? Now, I'll I'll just forward this by saying that um, a majority of Americans, even among, you know, NRA members, good dues paying folks who own guns, a vast majority of Americans support ending the gun show loophole that allows you to buy guns without background checks at a gun show, a registration of every firearm at the point of sale, banning high capacity magazines because the shooter had, I think, 30 round clips, as did Gabby Gifford's shooter in Tucson, Arizona, and banning assault rifles. So uh, among those are any others that you can think of any sensible measures what what do you think the nra suggested um well if i know the nra like i think i do it would probably be contributing guns to schools (laughs) you my darling know the nra it's like, oh my. After letting what should have been the craziest opinions and flim flammery out about how we should think of this disaster and how we ought to protect children, much less all human beings, from being mass murdered, NRA called a press conference yesterday. And its leader, Wayne LaPierre, called for armed police officers at every school in America. Their meaningful contribution, ladies and gentlemen. 
is volunteer forces of armed amateur cops. Because as we know in the Trayvon Martin case, people who have cop complexes and guns are never any trouble. And if you want a more specific example, there was an armed guard at Columbine High School. He was on his lunch break during the massacre. He came back, shot at Dylan Klebold and missed and then ran away. (laughs) But that was not nearly the single craziest thing that Wayne LaPierre suggested or discussed as a motive or cause or contributing factor to massacres like this. Exactly as you got at earlier, his one job, and of course he does it quite well, or he wouldn't have been the head of the NRA for like over a decade, is to blame these things on everything but the guns used to do them. Here are, from Think Progress, the 10 craziest statements from Wayne LaPierre's prepared remarks. Number one, gun-free school zones tell every insane killer in America that schools are their safest place to inflict maximum mayhem with minimum risk. Schools, as you probably know, are gun-free zones under the law. I, I saw a chart this morning that tracked violent acts in schools over the last, I think it was 20 years, just since schools became gun-free zones, and the amount of actual like gun violence plummets to near zero. It's at near zero now. Schools are actually very, very safe places. Number two, there exists in this country a callous, corrupt and corrupting shadow industry that sells and sows violence against its own people. And he was talking about the media. <laughs> the, the Too many in our national media, their corporate owners and their stockholders act as silent enablers, if not complicit co-conspirators. He name dropped natural born killers. As everyone does after a tragedy like this. He, he name checked uh, Grand Theft Auto and Mortal Kombat. May I just say, I have seen natural born killers probably about eight to ten times. And I have never inflicted violence on somebody. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm just, I'm just going to throw that out. I love natural born killers. Like, I think it's a great movie. I think it Julia is. gives one of her best performances ever. The movie's badass. That movie's badass. Sorry, go on. And of course, like, he uses these code words to imply that the non-whites are coming for you. Yeah, so of course he had the, we we need to have every single school in America immediately deploy a protection program proven to work. And by that, I mean armed security. How dare you name check this show, Wayne LaPierre? (laughs) And then, of course, the best thing he said was, the only thing that stops a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun. Wow. That's not true. It's just (laughs) factually not true. That is not true at all. That is wrong in all of the ways claims can be incorrect. Not only that, there are now numbers to back this up. The Harvard School of Public Health has an injury control research center, and they have gathered together all of the available public and study data on this. And they have found, and this is from hsph.harvard.edu, where there are more guns, there is more homicide. (laughs) What? Across high-income nations, more guns equal more homicide. Across states, more guns equal more homicide. I don't believe it. And they, and they even go through all of the ways that they surveyed the data that they surveyed and how they broke it down and what the time periods were. They controlled for pretty much every other possible factor. 
facts belie every single day the NRA's claim that the presence of more guns makes people more safe. And the sickest part of all is that Wayne LaPierre also talked about making a national database of mentally ill American citizens. Now, first of all, setting aside the idea that spying on mentally ill people won't make them more paranoid than they already are, it doesn't shock me, but it it horrifies me that another class of people is being pointed to as a scapegoat for society's problems. It's not the first time that I've seen mental illness casually linked with violence, and especially the the perpetrating of violence upon other people. But people with mental illnesses aren't actually prone to violence, aren't more prone to violence. This is also from Think Progress. I've noticed a lot of people bringing up mental illness as a cause of this rather than a factor in what led up to it. Evidence actually suggests that mentally ill are no more prone to violence than the general population. Mentally ill are more likely to actually be victims of violent crimes than the criminal perpetrators. In fact, histories of substance abuse and other sociodemographic and economic factors are stronger determinants of violent behavior than psychiatric disorders. The contribution of the mentally ill to overall crime rates is an extremely low 3-5%, to a number much lower than that of substance abuse. I'm going to say a couple things. One, I think I've seen something completely different. I definitely have seen people saying or mental illness is a, is a factor in this and their, their reactions to it are completely and utterly wrong. But then I've also seen a lot of people um, from like a national and legislative standpoint talking about the way that America treats the mentally ill needs to be overhauled in this country, which you've said that in previous episodes. And I think that that is 100 percent true. Yes, absolutely. However, the NRA or any gun lobbyist using this tragedy as a way to put blame or scapegoat the mentally ill is absolutely disgusting. Well, not only that, not only that, but take that a step further, because the NRA, again, is working with Alec. And these are the same corporate front groups. This is all the same corporate money that is pushing these huge austerity cuts and making these fake fiscal cliffs to make the government cut down on the programs that serve the very poor. And mental health programs in the states have been one of the biggest casualties of cuts in government spending over these years of Tea Party rule. Definitely. Yeah, and it, but it, but at the same time, you're also exactly right to point out that it's gross not only that they're using that as the scapegoat as the way to not talk about guns, making it harder to address that problem, but it's easier for Americans to access guns than to access mental health services. And this is also from Think Progress. A typical handgun can be purchased for anywhere between $250 and $500. Uh, 223 caliber semi-automatic rifle, which was the Bushmaster from that attack, cost between $700 and $2,000. By comparison, access to mental health services remains spotty. Its funding and beneficiary requirements subject to the whims of government attempting to balance their bloated budgets. And then there's the cost of more extensive care. According to the National Survey on Drug Use and Health, a mere 7.1% of all American adults receive mental health services. Most of these Americans' care is covered by private insurance, with children, poorer, and more elderly Americans being covered through public insurance programs, such as Medicare and Medicaid. But the out-of-pocket costs are staggeringly high. 
And this is a thing that Obamacare is actually finally going to start to solve, at least. Part of Obamacare is requiring actual parity between health insurance coverage of health care and mental health care. Um, for the first time, uh, counseling and services like that, your insurance companies won't be able to completely fuck you on prices. Um, just for just by virtue of the fact that you're seeing a specialist and just by virtue of the fact that that specialist is giving you mental health care and not a, a, another kind of operation. But again, that's not going to be around until 2014. But in the meantime, some changes have been already happening on the state level. The governor of Colorado, John Hickenlooper, announced that he was totally overhauling the state's mental health system in advance of Obamacare. And he's committing like millions of dollars I think they're building five walk-in clinics in Washington state, like walk-in mental health clinics that are completely free for anyone, but uh, like a ton of other measures. And that's like, that's only one state. That's only one governor. A lot of difference can be made if you treat it as the real problem that it is and not as a convenient scapegoat that, that really perpetrates some horrible stereotypes about really troubled people. It's kind of frightening to me that the first black president will be the first one to try to do something about strengthening gun control laws. I know it's it, it's pretty amazing. And I mean, I, I would argue that he kind of had to take up health care in his first term as well, because health care is was and is and remains the number one driver of federal spending for the next like 30, 40 years. I don't think Obama needed to take that up. I don't think that he absolutely had to do that. I think he did it because it was like he wanted to do it. He was talking about his mother. Like I saw him three times speak separately in different convention settings. He like was really passionate about healthcare. He wanted to take on that issue. I don't think he wants to take on gun control. He literally does have to. I agree. I agree in that sense that I think it is different. These mass killing sprees have reached a frequency and a volume that can no longer be ignored. But at the same time, it, it really does need to be a broader conversation about gun violence in general, because for every Sandy Hook, there are a hundred shootings, a hundred murders by gunfire in Chicago or in any other urban area. And those don't get the same amount of press attention and calls for na nationwide collective action. But this should really be an opportunity and now that the facts are in that no matter how way you slice or dice it, more guns mean more killings with guns. We can finally ask the question, you know, like, d does everyone absolutely need to be able to have any kind of armament? Not even any, especially semi-automatic or automatic high power artillery weapons. There's no need for that. Are you going to shoot 50,000 deer? Without having to reload? Why, why do you need that? Has the zombie apocalypse happened? Does n nobody tell me? What, what the hell? There's no need for that. In your question of, you know, what the hell do you need it for? Why do you need a semi-automatic gun? Why do you need a 20 or 30 round clip? It's going to be rationalized by people who think of everything as a tactical scenario. People who are so afraid, who either have been that afraid or have been whipped up into a frenzy. They view their lives as being constantly in danger. They view society as being constantly on the verge of collapse. And one group of folks that this is manifested in in our culture is the doomsday preppers. The mother of Adam Lanza, 
the Sandy Hook shooter. Nancy Lanza, who was Adam's first victim, who he shot with her own legally purchased and licensed guns, was a doomsday prepper. And this is an article about them from TalkingPointsMemo.com. Jerry Young lives in Reno, Nevada, sports a bright white Santa beard year-round, and has developed contingency plans to survive more than 150 disaster scenarios. The complete list is too long to print, but here are the A's. A new messiah. A new Persian empire. Addictive entertainment. Advanced technology disaster. Airplane crash. Anarchy. Antibiotic-resistant bacteria. Armageddon. Automotive accident. Avalanche. Azatlan Reconquista Uprising. (laughs) (laughs) Young is a prepper, a type of survivalist stocked up for what he hopes is the apocalyptic disaster that will never come. But if it does, he's ready and then some. What is he going to do? Shoot the bacteria? I don't get it. I, I don't even know. Well, I mean, these people don't just buy guns. They like they buy water, batteries, like stuff that you need in case of an emergency. And then more so than that, they buy like masks and and suits and like hazmat suits and gloves and exactly just a whole bunch of crap. I don't know where they put it. They must have like cellars or something. They well, people build silos. People build um, ship containers into storage facilities. Um, and just as you're saying, uh, this is from the article. Prepper is a catch-all term used to describe people who are preparing for the worst in every way they can. Adherents advocate maintaining large caches of food, water, and emergency supplies, as well as a personal arsenal, all with the goal of surviving a cataclysmic event. And what cataclysmic event are they preparing for? It doesn't really matter. <laughs> the most popular slang term in the, the most popular slang in the prepper world is SHTF, shorthand for when shit hits the fan. And that can be anything. Riots, climate change, peak oil, overpopulation. It's this lack of specificity that distinguishes preppers from other survivalist movements that are motivated by specific religious or political ideology, like the far-right patriot movement. Every prepper has a go-to fear, but the most important thing is that you have one at all. I don't think that there's a problem with preparing for an emergency. You know, if you have a tornado, it's nice to have water and a place to go when the tornado comes, a radio with batteries in it, battery-powered flashlights, and, you know, some food in case you can't cook. That's fine, because it's better to... Yeah, absolutely. There's nothing crazy about that. than, ...than to need it and not have it. Um... Mm-hmm. To prepare for a fucking doomsday holocaust. If there's something doomsday happening, what the hell makes you think that anybody would want you to be around for it? Why are you so special? <laughs> Just because you're prepared doesn't mean you're not going to be affected by it. So why even bother? Back to the question of why people feel the need to have these arsenals. What it really points to is how completely dystopic, how completely hopeless your worldview has to be to believe that the only way that you can feel free in your life is to constantly have a gun aimed at everyone else that you encounter and to expect them to all have a gun aimed at you too. To believe that the society and community that you live in are on the edge of 
collapse and that post that collapse what you'll really need to do is kill a lot of people when it comes down to it that amount of fear and paranoia is pretty much unhealthy on its own without bringing an actual gun into the equation but these people again are assembling arsenals you know like statistically the amount of american households that own guns has gone down over the decades the amount of guns owned by each household has continued to go up which is why statistically gun sales continue to grow strongly each and every year especially each year of the obama administration but from this article a doomsday prepper forum user from georgia confessed that when it really came down to it there was no rational explanation for his prepping he wasn't preparing for a rough economy or a bad storm he thought society was going to collapse even though he admitted there was no historical precedent that could justify that belief quote for me it is a gut feeling a culmination of current events and a desire to make sure that i am living up to my responsibility to care for my family i do fear that a major shift in our culture is coming soon and that is my main motivation for the amount of resources that i am putting into my preps small penis that could be one thing small penis that's all it is literally all it is i'm thinking statistical non-majority status of course it's a generalization to say but i've only ever seen white doomsday preppers no i mean on the show they've got different cultures with different oh do they it's a national geographic show they have different i mean most of them are backwards southern like no teeth type of people however there are you know there are a lot in every culture Mm -hmm. there are people that prepare for the end of the world because they think that they're special enough to be around for it But like with the water and the food and the batteries and stuff, it's better to have it and not need it than to need it and not have it. That's from True True, Oh, absolutely. That's from True Romance. And he's actually talking about a gun (laughs) in True Romance when he says that, funnily enough. Um, But secondly... (laughs) Wayne LaPierre has just announced that Asia Coleman is the worst monster ever. (laughs) Secondly, though, I do think that it is a bit naive to think that if some shit does, like if society does unravel, that there are going to be people that you won't have to kill. Because there are definitely going to be people that you're going to have to kill because people are going to freak the fuck out. And like, I mean, you know, as you, you saw with Katrina with people like looting and stuff and like the National Guard that came in were just worse than the actual people there. So, yeah, people are going to. Freak- well, yeah, I mean, the, the the looting was on a much smaller scale than was reported, you know, and I mean, it after the storm, a lot of the hysteria that came out because of the actual lack of real media available there there were rumors of like mass rapes going on in the superdome and like babies being raped and all kinds of crazy shit that turned out to be completely wrong mm-hmm. but no the national guard i mean or somebody some group like the black ops people they did come down there and do like a lot of bad shit for no reason i'm not talking about the raping the babies in the superdome or anything like that but like they went down there and they were like arresting people they were just acting like it was martial law and they were the the heroes People are bad. Like, there are a lot of people that are really bad. At the same time, a lot of good, well-intentioned people. But if shit goes down, there are going to be some bad people out there that you are going to need to protect yourself against. What? what are- In a civilized society, there are not people that we are supposed to have to arm ourselves against. You that know, is, like it's it's a completely hopeless message. I mean, that's true, but I don't think that you understand. I mean, you might you might understand, but like, society can unravel rather rapidly and quickly. I mean, it's, it's, you know, there's a lot of amazing constructs that we put up that shield us from this. But yeah, society, like there, people are animals. Like, I mean, 
they're animals. They're um, mammals. Right. But in, in the wake of those tragedies, we also see people responding from their very best instincts in that is, far greater number than the assholes, you know? So, like, it's, it's again, it's one of those things where, like, it, it's also revealing of the NRAs and of gun nuts view of humanity that they think that the instant things actually go to shit, if they go to shit, people would only revert to their worst instincts. I'm not saying the NRA is right. No, I'm, I'm not saying that. I'm not accusing you of that. I don't like guns at all. But I mean, if you take away everybody's guns and I'm not like, this is obviously the NRA's thing, but if you take away everybody's guns, they're still going to find really nice ways to kill each other. So just, well, but that's what that that's guy in China, that guy in China who just like the same day Sandy Hook happened, stabbed like a bunch of kids. Nobody. Right. But no one died. Yeah, it's true. A lot of people have been invoking the the example. And unfortunately, it's a fact of life that people will attempt violence that horrifies us. And I hope we never lose our capacity to be horrified because that means that there is still some moral instinct in us that wants to be good. But uh, of course, people are going to find ways to be horrible to each other if we had fewer numbers of and harder access to more basic bottom line everywhere qualifications to getting access to those weapons then that deadly calculus of more guns equals more deaths would finally start to be reduced no i'm completely for that i'm completely for gun control what i'm against is i mean i guess i'm just against labeling all doomsday preppers as horrible crazy gun nuts when they're really trying to protect their family Exactly. That's in, and I think it's also important to say that not all gun owners are gun nuts, and not all NRA members are gun nuts. But the organization and the, its leaders are fragrantly nutty. I would completely agree with that. I mean, I'm okay. I'm okay with you know somebody who is well trained and licensed and has. I don't. I hate guns. I really do hate guns because they are. I don't. I don't see a need for them for normal people that go, you know, that go to their jobs. But I mean, the fact that my dad has a couple guns in case some shit goes down, I'm okay with that because I know him and like, he's not crazy. I mean, I'm sorry. Let me, I'm going to, I'm going to rephrase that. I'm going to rephrase that. <sighs> like I know him and I mean, he wouldn't hurt anybody that wasn't immediately hurting somebody in his general vicinity. Mm-hmm. And so like, I'm okay with that. But I don't I don't like guns at the same time. And I wish that people didn't have them. The fact that they do, I mean, it's just something that we're currently having to live with. And I don't I don't I mean, it's a really difficult equation to try to fix. I don't think it is, though, because I, I think, like I said earlier, like it, polling was strong majorities of Americans support stronger gun measures than we have now. Let's enact those banning high capacity magazines. That's not confiscating guns. And the NRA is always going to try to whip people into a frenzy and to stoke people's fear because they're a lobbying organization for gun manufacturers. So they're just trying to enhance their company's bottom line, which is another reason why they've fomented fear among people so that even though it's fewer households buying guns, they'll each buy more of them because they're that much more afraid. And that cycle will continue until... We find mutually agreeable ways of limiting people's access to guns. But that word mutually agreeable. Exactly. How is it How is it ever going to be mutually agreeable? Like, it's always like, yeah, so this is my gun. You're trying to take it from me. That's just really not going to happen. 
there was a Supreme Court case a couple years back called DC versus Heller. And in that decision, the Supreme Court found that there is a constitutional right under the Second Amendment to own guns for personal defense. The highest court in the land has declared that the law of the land is a constitutional right to own guns. So in that sense, the government is prevented from outright banning guns and from actually confiscating everyone's guns. They can still criminalize high-capacity magazines. They can criminalize uh, certain types of guns, like assault weapons or something, but they can't make it blanket illegal to have guns unless and until the people overturn the Second Amendment, which, again, I don't think that would ever be a mutually agreeable thing. But I'm saying, like, now that there is that baseline of freedom in owning guns, there should also be, because there isn't right now, a nationwide baseline that in every state you have to register a gun at the point of purchase, that there is no gun show loophole, that there's a waiting period, that you that there are some kind of screenings for mental health of some form or another, um, or at least making it making it harder for mentally ill people to have access to guns. But again, like I just think some fundamental regulation should be put in place. And no, that won't get rid of every gun-wielding asshole, but hopefully it'll keep some assholes from getting some guns. We're obviously still around, so we'll be around to see how this manifests. I'm really hoping that there is some congressional action on it, that there are some votes on it in the new session. I also hope that Harry Reid finally reforms the filibuster in the Senate. He's been trying to grow a pair. Harry Reid has gotten suspiciously close to growing a pair. I saw a little one pop up just the other day. It's a Christmas miracle. It's a Christmas miracle. But yeah, it looks like at the beginning of the next session of the U.S. Senate, the Democratic Party might finally go Mr. Smith goes to Washington all over the Republicans' asses, especially over the last couple decades. But most intensely during the last decade, the Republican Party in the Senate has completely debilitated the U.S. Congress. They have established a 60-vote threshold to make any business in the Senate happen, to bring up anything for a vote, to begin debate on anything, to begin debate on bringing up debate for a vote on a debate. (laughs) None of these actions that the Republicans are obstructing are outlined in the Constitution. The filibusters that Republicans have insisted on have not actually required them to take to the floor to speak or to maintain a certain number of senators in the chamber who agree with them. There literally has been a silent filibuster, and that has been used. There were over 400 bills passed by Nancy Pelosi's House between 2008 and 2010 that were never brought up for a vote in the Senate, thanks to the Republicans. And it looks like at the start of the new Senate session next January, if Democrats can find 51 votes, and that can include 50 votes plus the vice president, but they could easily do it without that, um, they can change the rules of the Senate to actually require that senators who want to filibuster actually filibuster. And that means staying there the whole time, not going off of the podium to get McDonald's or something. Yes. (laughs) They're calling it a talking filibuster. And this is from Huffington Post. Um, The Democratic solution to the filibuster, make them talk. 
The next time a minority of senators find something the majority supports to be objectionable, they may be required to take the Senate floor and explain just why they object. And when they're done with that, they'll have to keep talking and talking and talking. I've got a better idea. Literally a better idea. You should make all of the Congress, anytime a bill is presented, have them take a test on the bill to see if they understand it. The ones who pass it get to vote on it. And that will become... The new curve, I guess, for the vote. So, like, it doesn't go, like, you have to get this many. It's, like, half of the people, uh, over, like, over half, not even two-thirds majority, over half of the people that understood the bill with complete comprehension can vote on it. You're assuming that any bill could get majority support that way? (laughs) If there's a test on it. I'm I'm really I'm really not as optimistic as you are about that. I'm I'm assuming that most of the people would fail. So like I'm just the ones with reading comprehension. I'm just saying, like I'm not sure any bills would get enough support to actually pass. <laughs> if you're requiring people to be fully up on the things they're voting for and against, I don't know if you've got Congress there. <laughs> exactly. So most of those people would be like they couldn't vote on it. Like nothing. They couldn't say yay or nay. They have no votes. Unfortunately, 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 the Senate is based around deliberation and votes. Um, But that's actually the kind of lever that Harry Reid is going to tinker with, supposedly. Um, The critical component is a mechanism that would force senators to physically take the floor and speak in order to maintain opposition to legislation. The effort to end a filibuster is called a cloture motion. Under the proposed rules, if a cloture vote failed to win a simple majority, the bill would be killed and the Senate would move to new business. But if it won a majority, though less than a supermajority of 60, the bill would remain on the floor for any senator who wished to opine on it. If at some point no senator rose to speak, after given several chances to do so, a new vote would be called, and only a simple majority would be needed to pass it. Nice. I like that. I like the test idea better, though. Because then you, as a a voting individual, could see how dumb the congressperson you voted into office actually is. You know the Republicans aren't self-aware enough to know how stupid they'll sound, but self-aggrandizing enough to want to hear themselves speak. So you know that there are going to be enough Republicans to talking filibuster things. That's definitely true. Like, what I look forward to is Republicans expressing their views candidly in the form of filibustering bills. Because, I mean, doing it in the form of press conferences for their super PAC and their horrible organizations supporting (laughs) guns and supporting (laughs) wars has been working out so well for them recently. I just think we need to give them more opportunities to express. I mean, you can always, though, at the end of a filibuster, if it's successful, spin it to look like, oh, you know, I was just tired. I was speaking for like 12 hours on the Senate floor. I didn't get any McDonald's. I had to pee in a diaper. It was horrible. (laughs) But you can't spin a bad grade on multiple tests for every bill that comes (laughs) to the Senate. (laughs) It's like... I got enough. I can't vote, basically. Your senator or your congressman, like, what the hell? <laughs> you voted in an absolute idiot. They can't do anything because they can't pass a fucking test. Well, but that's the problem is they can't pass bills. They can't get votes for anything. Like, that That doesn't solve the problem, it Asia. Problem. It does solve the problem in that if they fail the test, they their their seat basically becomes empty for that vote. 
you know, so they can't vote on it. And but there has to be a quorum to actually vote on bills. Their number have to be a minimum number. Yeah, their number won't contri- like. I'm saying what I'm saying is <laughs> what I'm saying is the Senate they doesn't work. Become that way, moot. No, this is the Congress. I'm not talking about the Senate. I'm talking about the Congress. The Congress does not work that way either. They like you make them take a test. And okay, I will agree to this, but only if that test is implemented and written by John Boehner. <laughs> because again. <laughs> Everything John Boehner has been doing (laughs) has blown up so spectacularly. He couldn't get Republican votes for his own plan B fiscal (laughs) cliff bill. Like, I would love to see the literacy and comprehension test by John Boehner. I just worry that once you take out all the Tea Partiers and the Blue Dog Democrats, that you wouldn't have enough of a legislative quorum to actually pass laws. Well, no, there wouldn't have to be a quorum because the number would go lower. Right. That's you. That is not constitutional. The number would just be lower. Like these people cannot vote on the existence of the quorum is a hard limitation. It doesn't change. So you think that all of those people would not pass enough for us to not even have a quorum. I don't know, honestly. There are so many stupid people in Congress. <laughs> so, like, Congress in general is messed up, but the Senate itself is particularly broken. You know, so, I mean, I also don't think it's the case that senators are necessarily more or less cogent and cognizant individuals if they're in either house, but... It's literally the rules of the Senate made the Senate come to a complete halt. I hope Democrats really honestly fight for legitimate reforms to make actual debate happen in the Senate, because what's happening now is just a bunch of parliamentary bullshit. Yeah, I mean, it's a bit ridiculous. They they can't. they're, They're ineffectual. In any other job, if you had the results that this Senate has had, you would get fired. And it's true. You can't take your PR agent to work with you if you have a normal job. (laughs) Can you spin that for me? (laughs) Jobs. (laughs) Client. Good. You bad. Goodbye. (laughs) The economy. Well, when you put it that way. (laughs) I I mean, filibuster reform will go, I guess, a ways, I think, but I don't... I really, I want, I want this test, Seth. I want this test. <laughs> I want to know how these people understand what they're, for, like, for instance, with the, UN, with the UN treaty, they should have had to take a test so that they understood what the fuck they were doing. And if they didn't, then they should have just shut the fuck up. A test is a meter of how much you should shut the fuck up about a certain topic. <laughs> I love that so much. (laughs) A test is a meter of how much you should shut the fuck up. (laughs) When you, Asia Coleman, run for Congress. Oh my God. (laughs) And implement the Congressional Test Act. I will be proud to spin the law. (laughs) In the Senate. No, I'll spin it to MSNBC. I'll take your message to the people. (laughs) What we're saying here is that this test is a measure of how much these people should shut the fuck up. (laughs) It'll put in glaring terms and numbers just how stupid they are and just how little they understand of the people's business that you sent them here to do. 
But see, Asia, the problem is, ultimately, that would reflect poorly on the American citizens who, as we all know, take thoughtful and careful consideration in choosing their elected leaders. Oh, it's completely. (laughs) Completely. I mean, Fox News every day. Wow. Yeah. I mean, maybe people should take a test. No, no, I'm not doing that. I would be completely comfortable with knowing how much my particular congressperson knows about a certain topic that they are trying to vote on. I mean, not vote on, I'm sorry, pass, or a bill they're trying to pass. You? The amount of knowledge you have of a bill is necessarily different from whether or not you support it. That's true. I'm so not- I guess my question would be like, what would be the the basement level of knowledge or understanding that you would have to have in order to be allowed to render that opinion? 80%. 80? That's totally arbitrary, though. Yeah, it is. It is arbitrary, but powerful <laughs> Like, Howard Bill's not arbitrary in some sense. Like, I mean, yeah, 80%, I think, is a comfortable number. That's a B for you to know that you're about to vote on something that's going to affect the people in your district's lives. I think that's that's perfectly acceptable. There are going to be no congressmen left behind. <laughs> and I have solved government. The end. Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs> well, we've now solved the government. <laughs> The NRA <laughs> and the fiscal cliff. Salt. I would say our work for the year is done, Asia yes. Coleman. Done completely. I will simply leave you. I will never simply leave you. A footnote to our fiscal cliff discussion from earlier. Talking points memo relays a quote from President Obama. Apparently, the fiscal cliff negotiations stalled out. Mr. Obama repeatedly lost patience with the speaker. In an Oval Office meeting last week, he told Mr. Boehner that if the sides didn't reach agreement, he would use his inaugural address and his State of the Union speech to tell the country the Republicans were at fault. At one point, according to notes taken by a participant, John Boehner told the president, I put $800 billion in tax revenue on the table. What do I get for that? You get nothing, the president said. I get that for free. (laughs) 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 We were going to... Elected shaft. So fucking great. (laughs) With that, I am glad to go off the cliff with you any day of the week, Asia Coleman. Oh, thank you, Seth Pearson. I am so grateful to have you in my life, but also to be able to have these occasional voyages of thought and word with you. (laughs) Me too. (laughs) If anyone who heard this liked what they heard, please become a fan of our podcast. You can do so at facebook.com slash by that I mean. You can subscribe to us. We're on iTunes, you know. And my website is themfp.org. By that I mean is a production of the MFP Studios in Los Angeles, California. Until 2013, I have been Seth Pearson. I have not been Seth Pearson. And there's just not much we can do about that.